you've come to the right place if you're looking to create, launch, and scale a high-value online training program. I'm your guide, Chris Badgett. I'm the co-founder of Lifter LMS, the most powerful learning management system for WordPress. Stay to the end. I've got something special for you. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. I'm joined by a special guest, Paul Charlton. He's from WP Tuts. Check him out on YouTube. The website is wptuts.co.uk. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you doing, Chris? How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. You are like the epitome of uh, what I call an education entrepreneur. So you're a course creator, a YouTuber, uh, a WordPress power user. And really a giver. I see you give a lot to the community and you you put your heart and soul into all your content and everything like that. It's really impressive. Let me just take us back to the beginning. How did you fall in love with building websites? Man, that's going to be going back quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basically, if we go back, you know, sort of dinosaur time, uh, I cut my teeth sort of building things for myself, but I was a an on sort of like an educator working with adult education for the best part of ten years, and while I started that kind of journey was with your typical IT things like your databases, your word processing, those kinds of skills. It quickly evolved into me being able to bring my passion into the sort of adult education arena where I was based, which meant that I could bring in web design using tools like Dreamweaver, you know, multimedia, flash animation, those types of things. So I've always had a passion for creating web design, for creating graphical content, for dealing with digital images and things. So it just meant that I could sort of take that into my educational background and build that into something that wasn't really being served that much at the time. Like I say, we're talking back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth kind of thing. So, you know, it was pretty slow going. Um, but then kind of from that point, it meant that I could sort of move on when I kind of moved out of education I set myself up as a business partner in a design business that we focused on web design, graphic design, company branding, and so on. So those kinds of, I I kind of like had the ability to work on both sides of the coin, as it were, where I could teach people how to do something in one part of my career. And then actually the doing part. I mean, I think they say most of the time when it comes to teachers, they teach, they don't do. So I kind of tried to embrace both aspects of that. And that just kind of led me on then to being able to expand my skill set, learn more about web design, learn the different tools, and eventually end up, you know, moving over into WordPress and things like that. So I have a kind of, my background has kind of had a natural progression from education to doing to now combining the two sides of things where I can actually build things for myself, build things for clients, but also hopefully help people create better websites themselves and learn, you know, expand their skill sets. At what point did you realize that you were kind of an entrepreneur because it sounds like it started with you working inside of a company or an organization. Mm-hmm. Is that right? When did that yeah, like I mean, entrepreneurial thing kind of bite you? I think I've always kind of had that spark. I mean, even going back to, to when I left school um, and did an apprenticeship kind of thing, I've always looked at ways of integrating my passions into ways of making money. And it, it's just, I've had a, a fortunate kind of time where I can actually combine passions with things that do ultimately make money. So I think pretty much from a very early age, I've had that entrepreneurial passion to look at ways in which I can monetize the things that I actually enjoy, as opposed to just going to work for someone else, which I think if anything, these days, there's one thing I've highlighted in my life is that I'm not a good employee. I'm much better doing my own thing, my own way and turning that into something that ultimately helps people. I mean, that's one of my biggest passions is to share the knowledge as opposed to the way it used to be going back years ago, where if you had skills and knowledge, you kind of just kept those close to your chest. You didn't share them because you were afraid of people knowing the skills that you'd honed over, you know, however many years. But I've always had that sort of thing where I would rather more people know about it. So the industry at large kind of benefits from it as opposed to just a very small minority of small minded individuals, as it were. Oh, that's cool. One of the wonderful things about you is you're a little bit of a unicorn in my book in that uh, there's this framework, the hipster, the hacker, and the hustler. So the hipster is great at design. The hacker is great at like code and functionality and figuring out like more technical stuff. 
and then the hustler builds businesses. You you seem to be really well balanced. It's it's rare to see somebody who's kind of firing on all three cylinders. Do you, did that just kind of happen, or did you uh, do you have any thoughts on on that balance in your life? Um, thank you very much for that. That's very much appreciated. Um, I've been called a lot of things. The unicorn is not <laughs> one of them very often. Um, I, I can't say that I made a conscious effort, but one of the things that I've always enjoyed is if there's a problem, my brain just goes into let's go into logical mode and let's look at how we solve it. And I'm, I'm kind of very OCD when it comes to that. It's like, if there's a problem, I have to solve it for my own peace of mind. So I mean, going back to um, when I set up the business originally, myself and a partner, there was no sort of co uh, content management systems around that I particularly liked. I mean, I didn't like WordPress at the time, it was something like version two, maybe three at a push. So it meant that I had to find ways of creating a content management system myself that managed my expectations was modular. And I could actually use that with with clients, <clears throat> excuse me. So it meant that, you know, I had to learn skills with Dreamweaver with coding with PHP and, you know, looking at ASP and those kinds of technologies, look at rapid application development tools, you know, there was quite a few different tools that were available at the time for quickly modularizing various different parts of building a website and a content management system and those kinds of connections between the tools. So it meant that I had a, a need and a passion to kind of develop something that I thought fit the niche that I wanted, which meant that that kind of gave me a good understanding of how you would combine various different tools and technologies to create something that was developed in a modular fashion. The design side of things, I mean, I've always come from, I come from an artistic background anyway, back, back to my grandfather. So design has always been something that I've had a bit of a passion for. I can't say I'm brilliant at it, but I think I've got enough to be dangerous. Um, and I can probably, you know, cover most things maybe a little bit longer than some people will design uh, to get the end result. But ultimately, I think I kind of get the... And it just, it just allowed me to take those different aspects and sort of put those together and then with the teaching side of things, you have to have an understanding in such a way that you can impart the knowledge and the reasoning behind why you've done something and the tools you've chosen to use. And, and I think that's kind of stood me in good stead when it comes to the different kinds of parts of a business as opposed to me just being on the code side or me just on the design side. So it's kind of, I think necessity has probably been the reasoning behind why I maybe approach things in the way that I have and picked up the skill sets that I, I have. I've got enough knowledge in those areas to be dangerous, but not enough to be considered, you know, sort of anything special, I don't think. Well, that's the brilliance of it. Like, I mean, even if it's just two things, you don't have to be the best of the world, but if you're pretty good at both those, that makes you unique. And if you got three things where that's, that's really cool. Um, let's talk about YouTube. It's halfway through 2022 as we're recording this when did you start the channel and right now you're at uh somewhere around 120,000 su subscribers uh i started it back in 2015 i think it is i think it's around 2015 but i didn't really take that channel particularly seriously i had three channels um okay. one was a music production channel which is still available another one was a, a lightroom and photoshop channel and the third one was the wordpress side of things because they're kind of like things that I have a passion for. And I've always kind of been the same. It's like if I've got a passion for it and I learn things, I just want to tell other people about those things so they can avoid some of the stumbling blocks and the, the longer roads that I've had to sort of work my way through to get to those results. But I kind of found probably around 2017, somewhere like that, that the WordPress one was definitely the one that was the right one to focus on for various different reasons. So it means that the other two have kind of fallen by the wayside. There's still content and lots of evergreen content on them, but I don't do anything with them these days. So I would say probably seriously from about 2017, and that's where I really dug deep into bringing various different kinds of content onto the channel and, and looking for my niche. I mean, when anyone that does anything to do with podcasting, YouTube, you know, anything like that, you kind of have to find your niche and find your road and what makes you, you, and if that resonates with a potential audience, and if it does, then embrace that side of things. What is what is your niche? Would you say in YouTube and WordPress, and like what is the? How would you describe your niche? Uh, definitely dynamic content. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, I do other things, but once I kind of focused on doing dynamic content using various different tools, that was something that really wasn't being served at all 
or if it was in, in, in very, very small minorities. So using tools like advanced custom fields and Crocoblocks Jet Engine and those kinds of things to take WordPress beyond what it is it really intended to do? You know, people use page builders and they use Gutenberg and things like that, and they'll build blogs and build websites. And, and that's great. I mean, that's kind of where it came from. But there's so much more you can do with it. But when you rely upon third party tools like, you know, a listing theme and plugin that goes with it, you're always confined to what they want to allow you to do. Whereas I always kind of like, I prefer to look at how can I actually build my own so I have the flexibility, which kind of goes back to that rapid application side of things with Dreamweaver back when I was doing that kind of thing. So I kind of approach WordPress from that side. And that's really where my channel kind of started to take off in a more niche orientated way is dynamic content and, and the related services and tools that kind of go with it. Could you describe dy dynamic content and some use cases for somebody that doesn't know what that is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you take a, a sort of simple example that most of us are probably used to, which is something like a real estate website or, you know, a sort of like a, a property sales website, WordPress is not really geared towards building something like that. However, WordPress is used for it. And to do that, you've either got to use a tool that allows you to create uh, listings but you kind of you're limited in what you can do there. Whereas with a tool like Advanced Custom Fields, which is allows you to create meta fields, which are basically your title, your content, basically every field inside WordPress is a meta field. You can create custom post types, and if you look at WordPress, your posts, your pages, WooCommerce products, all of those are custom post types. So you just you can create your own custom post types. You can connect your own custom meta fields. So you can basically build a combination of anything so a real estate website you're going to have a property you're going to have your agent inside your property you're going to have the square footage you're going to have an image gallery you're going to have the price you know inside your, your agent you're going to have various other things inside their contact deals and so on and then one of the beautiful things about using tools like this is you can then connect the agent or agents to the property or properties so all those kinds of things are dynamically generated content links that connect up to the WordPress database. It sounds kind of complex, but the reality is once you start to step into that world and, and see how these things actually combine, you can take it from being really simple to just, you know, adding a couple of extra fields into your normal WordPress posts, right the way up to creating business listings, creating, you know, uh, car sales websites, job listing boards, pretty much anything you can imagine, you can do that using the combination of tools that allow you to tap into custom post types and dynamic meta information and things like that. So I hope that kind of explains it in a, in a little bit anyway. That is cool. I think people really look up to you too, because you have a, um, like an honest take of best tool for the job kind of thing. What, uh, I mean, maybe we could look at page builders or maybe we could look more broadly at WordPress as a whole. Like how do you choose your tools and how do you, um, where's WordPress going? Like, what, what do you see right now? And how is your, what's your journey been like in terms of selecting tools and figuring out what to use? Cause there's so many options out there. There are absolutely millions of combinations. I think to me, it's a case of, there's a couple of different aspects. I tend to look at tools that meet, um, a need that I might have at a particular time. And then I'll test out a range of tools if it's a viable thing to do. You know, obviously there's lots of costs involved in various different things, but I'll try various different tools out, kind of get a feel for where they are. And then I'll kind of work with those and see how I can combine those with other tools. So, I mean, started off with Elementor Pro, for example, when they brought out version two, that brought in dynamic information. You know, we could use the dynamic tags that allowed you to connect it up to advanced custom fields and some other tools like that. So that was a nice combination that opened the door and still opens the door to a lot of people that want to kind of get into that side of things and probably would be my still be my tool of choice for a lot of different projects. But I think where we're going with uh, working with dynamic content and WordPress in general, as much as I may not have liked it originally, I think Gutenberg is the way that we're having to move forward. And not specifically for Gutenberg itself, but now I'm finding there's a lot of tools that are starting to embrace that kind of link between WordPress's database and the features you can, you can use inside the database and WordPress itself. They are now being integrated into block level tools. So for example, you've got things like uh, Stackable, you've got Cadence Blocks, Generate Blocks. 
or if you want something that's probably closer to a tool like Elementor is Quickly. And the reason I kind of think that that's the, the direction to go in is that they're giving you the benefit of removal from the excessive uh, code base that you have when it comes to working with page builders. But they're now getting to the point where they do have a more um, a more visual way of working. Up until now, Gutenberg itself is still very limited when it comes to the connection between what you design on the one side in the, in the back end of your website to what you see on the front end. And these are kind of starting to bridge that gap a little bit better and getting closer to what a lot of people are used to with page builders and so on. And they're also expanding into a lot more dynamic data, you know, relations between, like I say, you know, between your sort of agent and between your property, that relationship between those and some of the more advanced features. So I think moving forward, that's something that I think is definitely going to grow because there's a lot bigger market, I think, now for Gutenberg than it probably was a couple of years ago. But choosing tools, it really comes down to testing and finding what works well, you know. I'm in an enviable position where I, I can do that, you know, whether I, I purchase them myself, I contact the company to ask them, can I test things out? Uh, most of the time, it is a case, I'll just buy them and, and try them unless they're stupid money um, and find out what tools work well in combination, look for a scenario and think, right, how can I approach that and what tools would do that job? And then look into how viable it is to create something around that idea, that concept, as it were. So. Nothing really any, any different, I wouldn't have thought, to what most people are doing. You'll, you'll test the tools out. You'll try a free version if it's available. If you like the way it works, you'll then look at, is the paid upgrade worth investing in and, and then kind of move on from there. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, what you're saying. It's like best tool for the job, which starts for the job with the job as, instead of the tool. Because I don't know, I see in tools, yeah. sometimes people get kind of tribal, but the people that build the best sites oh, yeah. are really just vetting requirements and then doing the best they can with whatever they find um yeah tribalism tribalism is something that is is i think rife in the wordpress space when it comes especially when it comes to page builders there seems to be a real tribalism that once someone's bought into that product that all other products outside it should never be looked at and never be discussed and talked and you kind of think but surely, you know, that might be good for job A, but job B, that might not be a good fit. And I've kind of always championed, don't limit yourself to one tech stack, you know, one set of tools. You look at the job and you think, right, what's the best solution for that job? And then you, you, you use those tools and not try to shoehorn what you are used to working with, in, you know, shoehorn the job into it, as it were. Yeah, that's, that's really wise. Tell us about the the transition to course creation. When did that start or the idea to make some courses? I've toyed with the idea of making courses for, for quite some time, but talking to different content creators and course creators, one of the key things that I think when it comes to something like the tech space, which is moving very, very fast, you know, WordPress where it is now to where it is tomorrow to where it is in a year's time, it's a very volatile market in a lot of ways. So the one thing that's kind of always put me off is I don't want to start creating a course because if you're going to do a course properly, it's not something that takes you a couple of weeks. It's something that, that the planning, the execution, the recording, the editing, all those kinds of things will generally take me at least a couple of months. So it's looking for, for content that becomes viable longer term, evergreen content and creating something that maybe isn't low level as in like this is the specific thing or things that you do it's more going from a higher level to give people the ability to absorb a, a sort of technique and then doesn't matter what tools they decide to use so i've been toying with it for probably probably the last four or five years but not really knowing what direction to go in and not really having a way of being able to validate the idea or ideas that i might have come up with until probably the last two two and a half years when I, I created the Facebook group and started um, taking the WP Tets channel and what I do and making it less about WP Tets and more about me, if that makes sense, not to sound egotistical. But prior to that, it was faceless. You, you look at my earlier videos from probably about three years ago and they're all just screen capture. And that makes it difficult to get in to create a connection with your audience, your potential uh, students, as it were, you know, your potential customers, whatever you kind of want to call them. But changing that aspect of things, giving me the ability to be able to do the research with the potential buyers of any course or courses that I put out there has been invaluable and has helped me take an idea 
and see how viable it is. So probably about the last three to four years with any real sort of conviction. What, um, it's a challenge. I know just in teaching WordPress, if you get into tools and all of a sudden there's an update, something changes, or you decide to use a different tool or whatever. So what, how do you think about evergreen? Like, uh, I know you have a course called the client Lifecycle. That's more about building a web design business, right? Um, less about building a web design business, but more about how you would approach working with clients in the real world. Um, I spent probably the last 14, 15 years working with clients. And, and obviously during that time, I've stumbled across different things. I've sort of like come across situations that I've handled in one way, you know, better ways to handle it and how you highlight red, red flag clients, you know, people that are not going to be a good fit for you and, and various different aspects. So to me, that made a, a sort of logical potential course idea. Um, can't say that I haven't suffered from imposter syndrome with regards to that, but I kind of wanted to look at it. How would you go from the point of someone contacting you as a potential client to the end of a point of delivery, but not focusing at any point on how you physically build the website? I've already covered that in multiple videos, and there's, there's thousands of videos up on YouTube that will show you how to technically build a WordPress website in probably any niche you want. So this was more about how do you actually handle that contact, the various different ways they'll contact you? How do you check to see if a, a potential client is going to be a good fit for you? How do you handle contracts, the importance of contracts? Right the way through to we've now finished the website, you've signed the website off, what now? And that's kind of why the client lifecycle, whether it's the name will stay, but the client lifecycle course is more overview and showing you how and, the, and why you want to put processes into place as opposed to just being this is when a client comes in do x y and z I, I don't really think for a lot of users that's any real use what about the design system for designers at first start with what is a design system design is one of your super skills i think from the outside looking in so what uh what's what is a design system and and how do you help them with that a design system, again, this is one of those ones that is more about the principles and the processes than it is about the nitty gritty. But a design system can be something as simple as just having a sheet in front of you or a digital sheet or something on a website that has the colors, the typography, the font sizes you use, and any specific CSS that you might use for styling things like drop shadows, interactions, and things like that. Something really, really simple. And that's probably what most people are used, used to, which isn't technically a design system, it's more of a style guide, but a style guide kind of is a part of a design system, which is a bigger kind of overarching uh, sort of system. When you kind of look at things, and once you've kind of got those simple technical things out of the way, then design systems are gonna be things like the language and terminology that may be used. It can be the tone of voice. It could be the feeling that you try to encompass in a user when they visit the site. And if you look at things like the material guide, which you think is, is, um, is Google's material guide, which is freely available, and there's ones for Shopify. And if you do it just do a search for uh, design system, Shopify design systems, you know, Google and things like that, Microsoft, there are design systems out there that are hundreds and hundreds of pages and there's all the iconography they use and all the different things like that and the terminologies, the language, the feelings, the emotions and all these you know, so infinitesimal amounts of different things. And that's what a design system can be. You can go for something as simple as just having your styles and colors and CSS and any code snippets right the way up to having something really complex. So if you're working on a project for yourself, you may just do something really simple. Then when you come back in a year or two years time and you think I want to make some changes, but I can't remember what specific hex colors I used or typography and those kinds of things, you've got that available to you. But it's more useful when you're working then with clients where you may not go back to their website for a couple of years. And then by the time you go back there, it's a bit of a faff to go around and find out all the different things that you set up when you could have one simple document there. So the design system for designers course was more about if you are building websites, this is the reason why you may want to look at design systems. And you can go from something really simple all the way up to something really more complex, or you can just combine whatever elements you take away from it yourself to just speed up your design process, to speed up your updating process. And, you know, if you're working with teams, you're outsourcing, these things can be invaluable, but a lot of people don't know about them or don't use them. Just to give some contrast, what if somebody's like a newer 
website builder and they get they get into page builders and stuff and they have no concept of design system what can go wrong uh i mean one of the biggest things where you kind of get into problems is where you start dealing with things that are like when it comes to building sites we got a range of different units that you you can use for example you've got your pixels you've got m's you've got rems and, and, a, and a multitude of different things if you don't know to start off with what's being used so let's say you inherited design from someone else you may not know what any of that means and then when you suddenly look at it you go i just really have no idea what's going on here because i'm changing something here and it should be changing but it's not making a difference and that could be down to something as simple as you're trying to work in one value whereas the actual site has been set up in using a different set of values like i say it's a really simple example but once you if you have a style guide if you inherited that from someone else and you could see that style guide so your base font is this size and then everything else is based from that using percentages or m's and rems which is just values for how they work with that base value of 16 pixels for example using design systems can make that whole process much much easier because it means you can just like you say quickly look at it you can just go ah right that's what they're doing i can see now that i need to change that to have the impact what i want whereas i've been trying to change something else and it's not doing what i want really simple example but also things like changing global colors you know once you kind of understand what the color system that's being used and how they interact with each other uh, and maybe naming conventions they've used for different color values because you can use different naming conventions that are sort of globalized there's a lot of benefits for using things like that and if you don't and you inherit something or you know you were looking to start working with these because you know that you're going to be offloading this to someone else just having that understanding of what these different terms and how they impact upon the design and the aesthetic and all those kinds of things moving forward those are all things that using a design system even its most simple form can just alleviate a lot of stress and frustrations moving forward just one more thing on that where do where do people kind of capture a design system i, I mean it could be a web page on a website it's a figma file it's a pdf or like where do where do these live they can live anywhere i mean if, yeah. if you were sort of you're working as part of a, a collaborative team then it makes sense to have some kind of centralized location and that could be a private page on a wordpress website it could be somewhere that you've got set up as part of your your design agency you might have a section that you know you can say this is uh log in with these details this will give you access to client a and inside there there's all the design system we've used so you can quickly see all the assets that they've got so they all their branding their logos their colors typography units of measurement and so on it's really up to you. And it could be something as simple as just a Google Doc that you share with other people. The method that you use to, to combine that information is less important than actually going to the time and effort of combining that information and, and creating that document to start off with. So the method you use, whatever works for you as an individual, a freelancer, an agency, whatever you, you kind of brand yourself as, use whatever works and scale up if need be, but make it somewhere that you can share it should you need to. So starting off with something like Google Docs might be a good starting point because it's free and, and everybody can set up a Gmail account and access a file that you might put on there. That's awesome. Well, shifting gears, uh, if there's like another creator out there, like you're really inspiring as a creator and let's say they're even in the WordPress niche. I know you're you kind of had the wisdom of a niche within a niche, like dynamic content's kind of your thing. Uh, if somebody has some other unrelated niche or, um, and they're, or they're just to, just to inspire creators in general, how do you think about monetization and all this? Cause you can get really busy, like being a YouTuber, a course creator, working with clients, um, just having fun researching and, and like exploring your passion. How do you come up with a monetization plan around all this without exploding? Uh, I think in the same way you probably would when it comes down to setting up any kind of business. When I moved away from being a, a partner in a company to set up become a freelancer, and, and ultimately, I mean, I, I really don't work with clients that often. I, I work with existing clients, but I don't take new clients on. But obviously, most of my work is now YouTube and, and things like that. So I think you you'd, should approach this in exactly the same way you would any other business is if you look at putting all of your eggs in that one basket you don't look at how do i monetize various different streams then you need to go back and look at that because even using something as simple as as, as a web design freelancer there are lots of different revenue streams that you can attach to that kind of role and exactly the same whether you're doing youtube and a lot of creators will will do just that they'll be creators in the fact that they've got a web design agency or they're freelancing but they'll also be content creators you look at a lot of people 
that are not necessarily have the same level of viewership as a lot of the the sort of the the high end WordPress YouTubers do, you know, up in the sort of 250, 300 thousands. But I don't think you need that. You know, if you look at some of the, I can't say smaller creators, because I think that's disrespectful, but you look at some of the creators that don't necessarily have such a broad audience as some of the higher level ones do, they are getting contacted with job requests. And that's because they put in content, sharing their knowledge, and they have a web design agency. So I think you look at it in such a way that whatever you kind of look to do, you look at, right, what are the avenues that can potentially bring in revenue? So if you're a web design uh, freelancer, we'll stick with that analogy. You've got your hosting, you've got your domain registrations, you've got maintenance plans, care plans, updates. But then you can look at what content creation can you do? You know, blog entries, can you create YouTube videos? Even if you don't want to go on screen and do it, you know, you can do screen capture. Most computers these days will be able to get some software if it's not already part of your OS that costs you a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars, and you can start screen recording. Pick up yourself a cheap USB mic and develop that because there's lots of ways in which you can combine these different avenues to all bring it into the one thing. And the same goes with, you know, if you are an agency and you are finding that you're building up an audience, you don't need a massive audience to make a life-changing amount of money. You know, you can easily start to create courses. You've got things like Udemy, you've got Skillshare, you can create your own. You know, there's plenty of different WordPress plugins, as you well know, to do with learning management systems, you know, all those kinds of things, the tools are there and you can get started for such a little amount of money. But always look at what actually all leads back to the same thing, which is the information, the knowledge or the skills that you currently have that you can monetize. And then just look for the different avenues. You know, for me, for example, there's, you know, there's YouTube, but that wasn't monetized to start off with when you're making five, five pounds, about like $7, that's not going to could have changed the world. So you kind of have to look at what else can you do? But there are people out there with audiences as small as a couple of thousand and they're making six figure sums because they're sharing knowledge that people want to know about. And once they have trust in them, they'll contact them for paid work. They'll contact and, and sort of want to pay for courses or eBooks or PDFs or one-to-one -one training sessions, consultations. There's a million and one different ways that once you show any expertise that you can turn that skill and passion into a monetizable avenue for generating revenue. I think that answers the question. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's look at marketing in particular. And, and, but also like you mentioned, you had a Facebook group. What was the decision to start that? And then how do you think about marketing? The Facebook group was something that I looked into probably a couple of years ago and, and thought I'm really missing a trick here, you know, a lot of people ask the same questions. There's a lot of the same faces that are popping up in, you know, the, the comments and stuff like that on on YouTube and, and different places and on Twitter and stuff. So you're kind of thinking, well, it would make so much more sense instead of having to answer the same question in maybe three or four different platforms to put something together where to start off with, I can be involved and, and help out. But then if it grows, then everybody starts to help everybody else out. You know, in the same way that forums used to do it before and you, you know, you've different methods of doing it. So I set that that up and that has organically grown and we're just about to hit 10,000 um, sort of members on there. It's a very active group, but it has a lot of really good things. It has the fact that there's a great community inside there that help each other out, which means that I don't have to be the person that tries to answer everything because there's only so much that I know, there's only so much time I've got to be able to invest in learning and answering questions. But there's so many great people on there that are giving their time to answer questions, help and have fun. Um, and that's been amazing. So that, that was one of the most important things I think I did. But it also gave me a really great place for me to do marketing. And by marketing, I don't mean, you know, buy this product or buy that product. Marketing to me is more a case of it's a two-way thing. It's where I ask people, what do they want? What are they looking for? What's not being served right now? Is there value in me creating either a tutorial for free or a paid course or something like that? I can get feedback in the space of, 24 hours from my demographic target market. And I can find out the proof of whether that's something to pursue or something to think, okay, we'll just leave that where it is. And that's pretty much the only marketing I do. And obviously email marketing, but that's, I think that's still tied to the Facebook group, tied to the YouTube channel and, and giving things away for free on, on the website, like, like checklists and things that help people bring in value to that side of things. When it comes to like paid advertisements and so on, 
I've never really been that interested in doing it because you can spend an awful lot of money. And I know you can sort of, you can really hone and fine tune exactly where you go with this, but I would much rather keep a smaller audience of people that I know are exactly the people that I want to work with than go down that shelling money out for Facebook ads, for, for YouTube advertising and so on. Whether I'll do that in the, in the future, maybe, but I don't really have aspirations at this point in time to becoming a global power when it comes to <laughs> online education, you know? That's awesome. Uh, and just for a data point there, how long did it take you to get to 10,000 members in your group? Um, probably about three years, which seems like a long time. But again, I would much rather have a group of people that are passionate about what we talk about. Uh, and it's, it's, it's more of a community. That's the nice thing about it. There are a lot of people in there that are commenting in the Facebook. They're commenting on the YouTube videos. They're involved in the live streams. You see them on Twitter. They message me and email me and things like that. And, and it's nice to kind of feel that there's a lot of people that come back and forth there because they enjoy the atmosphere and the vibe, as it were, of the group and the people that are there. And you can see this different people have made genuine friendships when you go to the live stream and you see the same names and faces that are in that group welcome each other. And there's little conversations going on by the side of what you're actually talking about. And for me, that's that's something that I think is is massively important. I kind of work on that 1,000 true fans um, sort of analogy where I would much rather have 1,000 people that really enjoy what I do, what I produce and, and those kinds of things than have a million people of most of which couldn't care less. It just becomes vanity figures then. And I think that's kind of a bit of a fool's errand. Yeah, it sounds like, a, I mean, that's a healthy indicator of a strong niche community. People talk to each other and it's not about the size. Um, what about your approach to team? If am I correct in assuming you're you're you like to run a tight ship that's not like this big company, or do you have tons of team members supporting you? No, there's me. That's it. <laughs> there's just me. And is that it a con- literally I'm, just me? Is that a conscious choice? Like I just want to do my thing, and, and like, are you like a strong solopreneur? Like it's I just want to do it that style, or do you have intention to to like grow a big team or something like that? I don't have intention to grow a big team at, at this point in time. I don't think managing people is a strength that I have. So at this point I can manage what I'm doing. However, mm-hmm. set, that being said, uh, my ideal scenario is not just me, but my partner as well. I want it to be a family thing. Um, she's great in design. She's great in a sort of marketing and promotion and things like that. And that's where I see the business in the next two years is that my partner comes on board, that she's an integral part of the business. And if at that point, then it makes sense to look for outsourcing for video editing or, you know, things like that. There are so many sort of like software service applications and things out there that you can literally automate a big chunk of what that I need to do, like translations and so on. I don't feel the need at this point in time, but that's not to say that in the future, I wouldn't, I just, I think maybe my OCD aspect is a little bit sort of finding people that have the same passion for what you do as you do is a very difficult thing to do. So relinquishing that kind of control to somewhere that maybe I wouldn't have that same kind of passion. I'm a little hesitant at this point in time, but that's never to say that it won't happen in the future. It's just in immediate plans. That's not something I'm looking to do right now. Any hard lessons like on your journey here as a creator, as an education entrepreneur that if you could go back in time, I mean, you sound really positive and everything's a learning experience, but is there any like lesson you learned that, that you're, if you could go back, you'd care not to repeat? (laughs) I can't say it's it's a a not to repeat side of things, but I think the one thing that I kind of, I have to take away from from, I say the YouTube side of things because that's kind of like that that to me is is the sort of like the seed that allows these other things to kind of grow is that I would have niched down earlier because to start off with you look at what other channels are doing and it's very easy to go I'll just emulate what they do because they're having success and the reality is people don't necessarily buy into their channels because of the content they buy into them because of the people that are involved which kind of leads me on to the second point which is for the first probably four to five years of the WP Touch channel, it was faceless. You know, it was literally, I wasn't on the thumbnails, I wasn't in the videos or anything at all. So I made a conscious effort to change that 
And that is where I started to see more growth. And the sort of third thing that I wish I'd done earlier is actually have an opinion. Because even though I had an opinion on various different things I've talked about, I've ke- I tended to keep those things out of the videos. Whereas the one thing I found out is people want to know what your opinion is. They might disagree with it. They might think you're talking rubbish, but they still like to know that you have an opinion and have a talking point in the comment section, in you know the live streams, whatever you're doing, that can kind of come across and, and say what their point of view is. Those are kind of things that I wish I'd done earlier. So if anybody is thinking of getting into this side of things, um, seriously consider how you position your brand, whether your brand is you or whether you want your brand to be faceless. And if it's faceless, there's a set of challenges that kind of come with that. And if I'd known that earlier and I'd had the confidence to, to not care so much about going on the camera, I would have done that much earlier. Um, yeah, those are probably the, the, the key things that I take away from where I am right now and what I wish I'd done earlier in my career with it. All right. That's awesome. And last kind of series of questions, just rapid fire about as a YouTuber and as a creator. Um, and I'm sure some of the answers are, it depends, but uh, how many videos per week do you do? Or would you recommend in general, if somebody's going to get serious about YouTube? It depends on, sorry, straight away, it depends. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it really comes down to the content that you create. If longer form content makes sense, then spend the time to create one good quality longer form content video per week if you can. If it takes longer, that's fine if you're early on in your journey, but traction is only going to come when you have a consistency. If you're creating shorter form content, then I would say bare minimum of two, ideally three, if you can go above that. But Try to set yourself realistic goals that you can maintain longer term. Don't do something you think, oh, I'm going to start with five videos a week and I'm going to do that for the next year. Because the reality is once you're into week three and four and five and your ideas are running a little bit low and your motivation is running low because you're getting three views on your video, you'll very quickly wish you hadn't gone down that route. So think seriously longer term what it is you're trying to achieve and then plan your video schedule around that. Longer form content can be less because potential for longer watch time shorter form content, quicker to, to sort of process and batch it if you can, get as many as you can done. Even if it's just the recording side, you can edit. Editing is something you can do when you're sat there watching TV. But the recording side of it is something that takes your full concentration to do. So try to batch that if you can and then edit at your leisure. It looks like you do both long form, like hour plus and more short form, like 10 to 20 minutes kind of stuff. Uh, what what is the ideal length or how do you think about those two different formats like what makes the big epic video versus the the 15 minute one it really comes down to whether i want to do something as simple as demonstrate a tool or feature or some aspect of something that i like they'll tend to be shorter form whereas the ones that i, I generally call more masterclass ones which are the more in-depth multi-tool kind of tutorials they just naturally lend themselves to be in longer format i will be honest i don't generally tend to worry too much about the length and the duration of the videos these days it's not something that i plan to make a long video or a short video sometimes i sit down with an idea i start recording the idea after sort of like just outlining what i want to do and they run for an hour an hour and a half it's rare but they, they can do I think it just you, you've got to look at the topic. Can you do justice to whatever it is you're trying to create in 10 minutes? And if you can, try to do it in 10 minutes. But if all you're going to do is make assumptions of knowledge, skirt over really key things, because one of the things you'll find when it comes to creating more complex tutorials is you can not emphasize one key point that has a massive knock-on effect and someone misses that, and then they get three quarters of the way through the tutorial and something doesn't work because they didn't catch something that was really vital back at the beginning of it because you didn't emphasize that point enough. So do justice to what it is you're trying to do, but don't necessarily worry so much about the duration. If you like the short form content and your content fits into that, into manageable bite-sized pieces, go with it. If longer form is what you need, do that. That's awesome. And how how do you approach video editing? Do you try to like, are you, are you like one of these guys? It's like 10 X the amount of video time to edit it. Or do you try to do it? Like 
as fast as possible and you're okay with a margin of mistakes and ums and ahs and all that. Yeah, just tell us about your editing standards or process. Uh, let's go back to my OCD, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I changed over from uh, Windows and PCs to Apple about two years ago. Uh, primarily when the new sort of M1 Max came out because they were getting, you know, sort of really solid reviews when it comes to working with Final Cut Pro. And I always found that when I was working with uh, the Adobe Suite with Premiere on, on a PC, it was really painful to work with when you wanted to put any graphics and zooms and, and just little things that I think make educational content so much easier to understand. Moved over to the Mac, which means that I'm now totally 100% Apple. Final Cut Pro is just, just flies through the editing side of things. So I tend to find now that I probably spend less time editing than I did three to four years ago, but my editing is much better than it was that time ago because I could just sort of focus on creating something. Um, I do cut out pretty much all the ums and the ahs, although if I'm honest, there's not that many in there because I'm kind of used to doing this now. I've been doing it for so long and, and teaching. You, you kind of move away from that side of things. So, you know, pauses the when you click on something on screen you have to wait for it to open up i cut all those bits and pieces out and i record multi-cam so in other words i record the screen recording and i record the camera that you can kind of see right now and then i can use that together combine it link the timelines up together and then i can just switch back and forth which allows me to hide cuts without any real problem you know so there's this little tricks that you can use if you are editing and you don't like those jump cuts where you know you go from being like looking there to looking over there and saying something weird you know, there's lots of little tricks that you find. So I would probably say if I looked at the video I did this morning, which is a 15 minute video, I'll probably spend an hour editing it. So if you kind of use that, it's about four times the runtime versus the editing time in general. Uh, but I can kind of fly through this pretty quickly now with that side of things. I've got a pretty streamlined way of approaching it. And what's your approach to comments like? Is that something you get YouTube comments? Do you get into that daily or, or uh, how do you think about comments? Uh, I've got at least 750 videos on the channel. And one of the things that YouTube doesn't really do is it doesn't keep you up to date with all the comments you get. Because you can imagine with videos like that, if you say there's one comment per video, there's 750 comments coming in every single day. But the reality is YouTube probably pulls up 25 or 30. And generally, they're on your your top videos or your new videos so i'll look at them and if i think there's something that needs to be answered i'll try my best to answer them but the fact of the the, the matter is there's only so much of that you can kind of do while still trying to create content research edit videos you know all those kinds of things so i do try to get involved but most of the time if people are asking questions like you know how do i build a website using so and so it's like you're better off going to the facebook group because chances are you're going to get a better answer in there if i can answer it i will but i think as your channel grows you invariably have less time to be able to answer questions and comments but i try to answer some as often as possible if i can all right last youtuber question for you paul uh you you have an awesome looking studio how do you not necessarily all the specifics of the tech and the gear but obviously you kind of have like your creator sanctuary of productivity how do you think about mm -hmm. your production space where you make your content and your videos? Well, up until uh, probably the end of last year, I was sort of shooting things inside the room in the house, you know, much the same as probably most uh, anybody that's sort of creating YouTube content, especially at the beginning where you don't have a dedicated space as it were. So that was great, but the problem was a lot of that was to do with natural light. You're in the house, you're like you've got a dog there and your baby it's like all these things kind of lead to how the hell can i get a quiet environment to be able to record something so it, it wasn't conducive in the slightest but it had served well for 600 odd videos so i can't complain about it so it just meant that when i had the opportunity when we found out that we were going to have a baby my first thing after the sort of celebrations and stuff was like right i need to find some other way now and it's a choice of either going out and renting space, which I, again, have no control over and I'm limited to what I could do, or how can I actually get space in, in, in our house, in you know what we own kind of thing. So as it was, this is basically my garage three quarters converted into a studio, had totally soundproofed inside here, you know, so it means that I can now literally just walk in, switch the camera and everything on, turn the computer and bits and pieces on, and I could be recording a video in the space of five minutes and I'm, I'm ready to go straight away. 
but that's an enviable position to be in, you know, and it was, it was sort of necessity meant that I had to find a solution. Um, but you know, sometimes you don't have that, that luxury of being able to do something like that. But what I would always say to anybody that's either looking to get into doing this, or they're already doing it and they kind of wonder is make the best of what you've got. There are tools out there. Like for example, this room, even though it's not particularly big, there is an echo, which you can probably hear on the live stream on, on what we're doing right now. But if you listen to the videos, you don't get any of that because there are tools out there that allow you to get rid of any of that kind of reverb and echo and things. And it's like, you want to make yourself look and sound better. You don't need to spend huge amounts of money. There are tools out there to do just that. So my audio sounds better on there. Camera wise, you can pick yourself up. You can use your phone, you know, use, a, use a, an iPhone, for example, or, or an Android phone. They've got amazing cameras on there. Set that up. You can get noise reduction. You don't need expensive gear. You can be up and running for literally buy yourself a little lavalier mic that plugs into the bottom of your phone, use natural light and use your phone to do it. You can be up and running, you know, without any real problem. Do they have to be the best videos in the world? No, if you were giving good information and good knowledge and your audio is clear, nobody cares. <laughs> really, they don't. You look, some of the, the, the best performing videos I've had are the ones that I've literally set things up quickly and just run the video off and not given any thought to it. And they've, they've performed brilliantly. So as long as your audio is clear and you're explaining or you're giving information that's valuable to someone or people, the rest of it doesn't matter. You know, it, it doesn't. Just I'm lucky that I'm in a position that I could build something like this and now I have a dedicated space to do it. But this has become my job. So I need somewhere that I can, you know, hopefully look good, sounds good and allows me to operate as effective as, as, as I possibly can be. So I think that answered the question. That does. Love it. That's Paul, Paul Charlton. Go find him at WP Tuts on YouTube. And the website is wptuts.co.uk. Anywhere else for the people to connect with you or final words for the people out there? I mean, if, if you want to connect with me, I mean, the easiest thing to do with this, this Twitter, which is WP Tuts, literally just go on, onto, you, onto uh, Google and just type in WP Tuts. And other than the theme, which I didn't design, pretty much everything else you'll find on there is going to be me. Um, but if you are interested in finding out more, join the Facebook group, just do a search on there for WP Tuts and uh, get involved. It's a fantastic community and you can find out more about what I do. You can get involved in answering any kind of questions about future content, courses, training material, anything like that. There's lots of places to get in touch. Thanks for coming on the show, Paul. We really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. And that's a wrap for this episode of LMS Cast. Did you enjoy that episode? Tell your friends and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And I've got a gift for you over at lifterlms.com forward slash gift. Go to lifterlms.com forward slash gift. Keep learning, keep taking action, and I'll see you in the next episode.